following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Sometimes I hear the gospel reading or one of the readings in the service, and I'm like, oh, I want to I do a sermon on that one. But it's not the one that I prepared the sermon for. And I was just listening to that thinking, oh, there's so much happening in that story that would be interesting to talk about. And we won't. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well, I actually want to begin today with something that's not a sermon, which is to give you an update on our staffing transition at Artisan here. Um, perhaps the most exciting update to date. Um, for those of you who are just walking in the door today uh, or who, who don't quite remember or weren't clear on what happened, I'll give you the, the brief recap, which is that um, I recently finished a grad program in mental health counseling. I'm now working full-time as a mental health counselor Monday to Friday, and um, as such, I'm reducing my workload at Artisan to half-time. And so for many months now, we've been in the process of um, hiring a half-time executive pastor who will do some of the preaching here and who will help us with administrative uh, um, tasks from a pastoral perspective, caring for the whole system and structure of the church and um, that kind of stuff. Um, a while back, the congregation's members voted to authorize the uh, leadership team to authorize the leadership team to make this final hiring decision. We formed a search committee. We posted the job on like Indeed and uh, in various seminary networks and all over the place. And um, the, we've, the search committee formed uh, or you know, kind of received the resumes as they came in and vetted them and passed the, the most promising ones on to a couple of different interview committees. We had interviews with candidates. Um, and then uh, we brought the uh, interview committee's recommendations to the leadership team. The leadership team discussed it and has made uh, a final recommendation for a candidate. Um, now, what, what, well, what, what made this a little bit of a twist was that we had a candidate who w was part of our community already. And so this will change somewhat the stuff that comes next. Our plan was to have we were sort of assuming an outside candidate would, we'd never met before would come in and give a sermon and then do a meet and greet with the congregation so that you could all get to know them and we would have um, a period of congregational feedback and we could move forward before finalizing the offer. We're still going to do all those things, but it's going to be a little bit different because the person is known to us. And it's, it's going to feel a little different because we don't have like this brand new experience with a brand new person. Um, would you like me to talk longer about the details of this process before I tell you the thing that you want to know? <laughs> it's, it's killing the person too right now. Um, we are really pleased to tell you that uh, the leadership team has recommended Jay Newman uh, as our executive pastor of Canada. <laughs> Jay, uh, you know, many of you know Jay already, but um, Jay is a poet and a teacher and a pastor. Jay has a Master of Arts in Theological Studies from Northeastern Seminary, which incidentally is the same seminary where all four of Artisan's founding pastors got their master's degrees. Um, Jay also holds a Master in Fine Arts and MFA. Um, he's currently the director of the Office of International 
experiences? Engagement, sorry, um, at Roberts Wesleyan. And since my counseling work is also at Roberts Wesleyan, we are now uh, co-workers there and <laughs> headed toward being co-workers here, and um, it's very exciting. So as I said, the next part of the process is going to look mostly the same, but it's probably going to feel a little bit different. Jay is going to give a sermon uh, on February 11th, um, but you've already heard Jay give a sermon. Um, Jay is going to spend some time getting uh, you know, to know you a little bit better, maybe hang out, and maybe you can meet family members and things after the service on February 11th. By the way, this is two weeks from now. Um, but you, many of you already know Jay and the family. Um, so uh, we're still going to have a period of congregational uh, response and comments and questions. And, and in this case, we're, we're also going to be interested in, in what you know about Jay that you think we should know and things that you would invite us to invite him into being part of. And um, we're not adding to your job description. Don't worry about um, So we anticipate that that whole process is going to go smoothly, that we're not going to hit any snags or, or, or anything like that. And so in that case, the, the start date is probably going to be pretty soon. Um, I hesitate to put in a specific date on it just because I've, I've been tempted to do that before and, and fooled by the realities of the universe. <laughs> um, but we're really, really pleased with this, uh, to have gotten this far in the process with this particular person. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I want to say my words of thanks to our search committee uh, who worked really hard in the initial stages of this process, to our leadership team who worked really hard and met extra times and in some cases like urgently without, you know, outside of our normal rhythm of meeting and just everybody put a lot of work into this and the process um, was uh, ultimately I think very generative and rewarding, and um, we rose to the challenge, I think. And I'm really, really genuinely um, hopeful and optimistic for what comes next. So congratulations to Jay, and um, we'll, we'll be talking more. <laughs> OK. Um, how to make sure no one listens to your sermon in one easy step. <laughs> I do have a brief sermon for you today. <laughs> um, the passage that I selected several weeks ago to be the topic of the sermon today, uh, before we knew how this, how, you know, the timeline along, on which this other process would work out, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I have to say, about this passage, it wants one, or two, it wants one of two different types of sermon. It wants a very short sermon, or it wants a very long sermon. <laughs> And as your pastor, I love you all. <laughs> and I have your best interests at heart. And so I'm going to give you the short version. Um, but first, let me read the passage to you. And it will be on screen here, so you can follow along. Um, if you're a visual reader, that's, uh, oh, I don't want that. That's Greek. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It looks very much like the English one, just so you know I haven't completely. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, no idol in the world really exists, end quote, and that, quote, there is no God but one, end quote. Indeed, even though there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we are, from whom all things are, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Quote, food will not bring us close to God, end quote. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed." But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The confusing word of the Lord. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> thanks be to God. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> this passage is one of those passages that the Apostle Paul is prone to giving us, where it's just like, like da 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 da, and pretty soon you're like, that's what you're hearing, like wah 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 wah, and you have no idea where the thread got lost, right? You can kind of hear him laying out this outline, you know, Roman numeral one, capital A, Arabic numeral one. Little Roman numeral one. Where are we in the thread of what he's talking about? Nobody knows. What are the quotation marks about? Nobody knows. What is he quoting? Nobody knows. People do actually know some of these things. But as a reader, especially if you're not like trained in this, and if you haven't read the entire uh, book of 1 Corinthians, we have to always remember that these kind of meandering long passages happen in a context, right? They take place in the flow of a larger piece of writing. If you don't know all of that, you might be tempted to go, well, <laughs> I have no idea what's happening here. Okay. And then it's like, like, who's weak and who's strong? And do people have a different standards for what becomes sin for them based on how strong or weak they are? or what they know or don't know, and how is that fair, and who's responsible for whom in that situation. And then this is like a written in the first century, and hopefully scripture says something to us in the 21st century. And so how do we, 20 centuries later, say like, this is gonna make a concrete difference in my life in the following way, blank. It's very difficult. 
to do all of that. Even for people who are trained in this and who have read the whole book, it's still difficult. And there is disagreement sometimes about what the meaning was, which means, of course, there's some disagreement about what the meaning is now. Those are not always the same exact thing. Uh, for example, I don't remember the last time I saw a temple with idols in it where food was being cooked that was then served to people for dinner. That's not a problem we face in the 21st century version of being Christian people. So we might have to apply by analogy or allegory or extrapolation. So I'm going to try to give you a little bit of the context just because I'm that person. I cannot let you out of the room without giving you a little bit of the context. So if you are completely confused about everything that's happening in this passage, I'll try to give you a little bit of information. The short version is that Christianity emerged out of Judaism in first century Roman culture. Um, and so the, all the commandments, all of the laws of Jewish religion were initially assumed to be pertinent for Christians in one way. And then as the Christian faith sort of developed and the teachings of Jesus began to be applied, um, and especially as Gentiles, which is to say non-Jewish people, converted to Christianity, all this really hard work had to be done along the lines of how many Jewish laws does a Christian have to follow, especially if they were never Jewish. Right? And one of the things that was extremely important for first century Jews was staying separate from the, the pagan temple practices of Rome. Right? And so all of the idols that, that were in these so-called pagan temples were being worshipped and sometimes in the form of ritual sacrifice, which Jews also had a practice of. But if food had been used in that context, it, it should not ever be consumed by a faithful Jew. But sometimes that food was brought into the marketplace and sold. It's like, we're done with it religiously. Now let's make the best of it. Use every part of the buffalo, right? <laughs> um, but they were not to purchase or eat any of that meat. And uh, the practice of what sometimes is referred to as putting a hedge around the law was a way for devout people to avoid even getting close to breaking one of the laws of Moses. If you put a hedge around it and you not only don't break the law, but you don't break the thing that comes before the law so that you don't even get close to the risk of breaking the actual law, then that's a way to be on the safe side. And all of this stuff is kind of swirling in the minds and hearts and imaginations of the early Christians as Gentiles start to convert, Gentiles who've never thought about the commandments of Moses, people who've never read or heard recited, you shall not have any... Uh, graven images. You should not make any idols. There's only one God. Right? And so the other thing that's really interesting happening in this passage is that uh, what Paul writes to the church in Corinth that we know as the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians is not the complete extent of his correspondence with them. He not only wrote these two letters, he probably wrote others. And they definitely wrote letters back to him. They had questions for him as a leader of the church. They had arguments with him as a leader of the church. And so a lot of times when you read scripture and you see quotation marks, uh, especially if you see it kind of indented, what's happening is that the author is quoting earlier scripture. Usually it's a Christian text quoting a Hebrew text. 
what we would call a New Testament author quoting an Old Testament author. In this case, at least some of the quotation marks are probably Paul quoting the letter that the Corinthian Christians wrote to him to ask him questions or to challenge him on something he had already told them. And so we have this extra layer of confusion that we have to make sense of as we're working along the way to, make, to figure out what to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in the 21st century. What would be the equivalent for us, for you or for me or for us together, of food that had been sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple that was then being sold in the marketplace that we should not eat? but actually that we could eat because Christ sets us free from all of that. Oh, except that some people don't know that, and if they see us eating it, then their conscience will be disturbed and defiled, and, and actually then they might start eating it, and they don't have that freedom framework yet. And so they maybe actually are sinning by eating the thing that if we ate it, we would not be sinning. Does this make any sense to anybody? It makes a little sense to everybody. So, I have a, a desktop right now full of books, open, commentaries open to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I've been reading what the early church fathers and mothers had to say about this passage. I've also thought about this passage being a capital C, capital K church kid my whole life. I've thought about this passage many, many times over a period of decades and about what it means. And I think of it today both for what it means for me as a a person who used to have a very restrictive, legalistic, behavioral code connected to my Christian faith as a person. And I also think of it as a pastor of a church community that has worked really hard and with great faith to explore some challenging moral, ethical, and sociological dilemmas and to apply our Christian frame, our Christological lens to our present day. And still, with all of that work behind me, I find myself not 100% certain what the best way to interpret this passage is. Which brings me to Sudoku. <laughs> Anybody do Sudoku? Okay. If you don't know what Sudoku is, I'll give you the very quick version of it because it's important for what I'm about to say. Sudoku is a logic puzzle that uses numbers and it's a, a nine by nine grid, nine columns, nine rows. And that grid is further breaking down into, broken down into nine three-by-three three grids, these boxes that are smaller, right? Are you picturing this in your mind? And the, the, what, the way Sudoku works is that they'll put some numerals into various cells in the grid, and you have to, using logic, determine what all of the other numerals are using the following rule. Each of the nine numbers can only appear one time in each row, one time in each column, and one time in each three-by-three three block, right? If you don't, if that's like, oh, I thought 1 Corinthians 8 was bad. Um, it's fine. It's, it, the funny thing is it's not exactly a number thing. I'm not really, a, I'm like, like super into math, as you might know, but I find the logic of it kind of appealing and interesting. Um, and so I've solved some of these puzzles on paper. I've solved some of them online in a, like a web app, and then I've solved some of them on my phone using various phone apps. There's a bunch of Sudoku apps if you, have, uh, if you would like recommendations. I know all the best ones. Now on paper, if you're solving a Sudoku and you get stuck, your only option really is to cheat and go to the back 
or flip the paper over and find the answer. And what I try to do in that situation is like, okay, I'm missing this number. I'm only going to peek at that number and then I'm going to put it in here and now there's more of the puzzle filled in and maybe I can f use logic to figure out the rest. Does anybody else do this? Okay. Well, <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're, you're not wrong. Now, if you solve it in an app, some of the better apps will provide hints for you that are context aware. They know what you've filled in, they know what you've filled in wrong, and they'll tell you. But if you've, everything is right and you're stuck, they'll tell you. You want to look over here in the grid and think about this principle, and then you'll be able to fill in the rest of the grid, maybe, right? So, uh, I'm using this app uh, this past week called Classic Sudoku. It's, it's made by the, um, Cracking the Cryptic. If you've ever seen that viral video that went on YouTube about Sudoku, it's the same people who made that. Um, not that this matters at all, but I was stuck on one of the difficult puzzles. It was like one of the most difficult puzzles. <laughs> I'd done all the easy and intermediate ones. And I tapped for a hint, and this, I'm, I quote, this is what the hint said. In row three, four, six, and seven, the number seven can only appear in the same four columns, columns one, two, five, and eight. This pattern is called a jellyfish. It means you can eliminate sevens from the rest of those columns. So the one seven pair in column two, rows one and six, means that column two, row one, can only be a one. Uh, okay. I don't know what any of that means, but I know what you said at the end. Row one, column two has to be a one. Bam, I put it in. <laughs> and now I can get on with my life, which is to say solving this extremely difficult Sudoku that I just cheated to finish. <laughs> right? And so <laughs> sometimes, but this passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 8, reading it is like reading that hint. And you're like, I know the words that you just said, but I don't know why they're in that order. <laughs> I know the principles that you're hinting at, but I don't know what they have to do with me. And what you need to do is find a sentence in the passage that's like putting the one in column two of row one. And like you maybe don't have to understand all the rest of it to get on with your life, to living a life that is oriented toward and formed by the way of Jesus. And so I got no idea for each one of you what your version of food sacrifice to idols would be, whether you're the stronger sibling or the weaker sibling and whether you need to watch out in this way or that way. But I do know one thing, that knowledge puffs up Love builds up. And in, in one sense, you could erase the rest of the passage that I read to you and stick with that and get pretty darn far down the road toward a, a Christian ethic. Knowledge puffs up and love builds up. I'm not going to do this, but I could give a whole long sermon just about those few words. How many of you have ever met somebody who knew all kinds of stuff and it puffed them up and they were miserable to be around and they forgot to love people? How many of you have known somebody who is very lacking in knowledge but extremely loving and how they just warm up the whole room every time they come into it and, and you see Jesus in them in almost everything they do? 
we are a very smart crew here at Artisan. Like, there's a lot of, a lot of advanced degrees in the room. There's a lot of very thoughtful people in the room. There's a lot of people who used to have a very legalistic frame on their faith and who have kind of come to a place of understanding that that maybe is not actually what God requires. And so we have a little bit of knowledge in that area too. What we must not do with any of that knowledge is allow it to puff us up, is allow it to displace in ourselves the one calling of all Christian people, which is to love, love, love. And so I'm going to invite you to come and take communion together with that ringing in your ears and in your hearts and minds. Jesus uh, made the ultimate demonstration of love by putting his body on the line, by laying down his life for his friends. And I believe that you are his friends. And so as you come to this table, remember that Christ's body was broken for you. Remember that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. The big ones, the little ones, the ones you know about, the ones you don't know about, the ones that match, match one verse in 1 Corinthians 8, the ones that match a different verse in 1 Corinthians 8. It's all covered in this sacred meal. And so I'm going to invite you to come and receive it. You don't have to be a member of our church. You could just be kind of just trying to figure this out. And all you know is you want love in your life. All you know is you want Jesus in your life. Here he is. Here it is. Um, Dip the bread in one of the cups. There's wine and juice. Use your best judgment as what's appropriate for you. Eat it and remember that Christ's love covers a multitude of sins. Um, And if you prefer today not to take communion, just want to stay where you are and observe or think or pray, that's always okay too. We're going to continue to sing a couple of songs together. I invite you to sing as you come to communion or as you reflect and pause. And children are welcome at our table, so if you're a parent who wants to take communion with your kids, you can get them now. If you want to get communion first and then get your kids after, that's also okay. Our table's open. I invite you to come if you will. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.